0: Welcome to the January edition of BBRO Beecast. I'm Francesca Broom, your host and Knowledge Exchange Manager for BBRO. With the new year upon us, we thought we'd reflect on some of the questions we've had from growers in the recent weeks. And that involves impurities and sugar levels. So let's take a visit to the Wissy factory to just see how samples are dealt with, what goes through the tear house and more importantly, what can we do to try and improve things in future? So it's a busy day here at the Wissy factory and I'm very pleased to be here with Perry Bateman who is actually the science lead for British Sugar and he's going to take us on a little bit of a journey through the arrival of beet right through to the tear house for your samples. So let's hear from Perry as to where we are now and uh, what's going on.
1: Great, thanks, you Tez. Yeah, so we're standing next to the uh, inn bridge at Whistington Factory, uh, which is the first place where a, a, a lorry full of feet will arrive on our site. Um, and what happens here is the, the gross weight of the lorry is measured, so it'll go onto a weighbridge and we'll have the total weight of the vehicle and the contents coming onto site. At that point as well, a um, ticket will be issued to the, to the driver, Um, So that will enable us to track any samples that are taken from that lorry all the way through the process and into our computer system. And the tickets that are issued, they're actually linked directly back to the growers' contracts, aren't they? That's absolutely right. So there will be a contract identification card and a vehicle identification card that will be able to keep track of the lorries and the contracts that are coming in. Because, of course, lorries are used for multiple contracts, so everything is kept in synchronisation with each other.
0: And do you time how long it takes for the lorries to get through the system?
1: Not personally. Um, (laughs) I mean some of it depends on whether, so if the lorry is sampled it will go through to the the sampling probes which we'll get to in a minute. That will take a little bit of time. Uh, If it's not sampled it will go straight through and it'll either be washed out directly into the factory through our Alpha wash system here or it will be unloaded onto the flat pad. Um, where the beet will be piled up and stored for use outside of uh, Weybridge opening times.
0: And I, I remember years ago, you'd have lorries queuing down the road, but now with the, the just-in-time, with the planning that goes on, the logistics, it very rarely happens.
1: It's quite a, quite a quick turnaround, isn't it? And that's all credit to the, the guys in the, uh, the beet intake system here. Um, I have very little to do with that I'm, <laughs> I'm pleased to say but yeah it's a it's a logistical masterpiece to keep it all flowing um, it's an awful lot of beet lorries a lot of beet has to come in to keep this place moving at full tilt when it's when it's slicing so yeah, lots, lots to keep everybody working hard.
0: Right, so should we just hold this next lorry up and we'll make our way across to the, <laughs> sounds the next good, sounds point? Good. Yep. So it's good to see so much health and safety. Obviously, helps with the whole factory health and safety
1: remit, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, it's right at the front of our agenda all day, every day. It uh, should be top of everybody's list. Right, so where are we now? Is this? So we're just walking through the um, Tear House building, but that's because it's just the easiest route to where we're going to next, which will be um, where the samples are actually taken from the beet lorries. And an awful lot warmer than standing outside. Indeed, yes. (laughs) There's a a little bit of rain in the air out there, isn't there? And
0: I did just notice we passed the NFU office there. Is that where they're based?
1: Yes, yeah, they've got a representative at every site. Um, and as this is where all the processing is done for the, the beet samples for payment purposes um, there's clearly a significant presence here at all times to, to keep an eye on all of that. Is that man 24 hours? Whilst we're working, yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Um, so what we're standing in front of here is our um, automated beat samplers and what these do is they, they take essentially a core sample out of the back of the lorry um, It's designed to take a representative sample of the contents of the lorry, it screws down into the into the trailer, lifts up a core, so a cross-section essentially of the, of the trailer's worth of contents and then deposits that into a sample splitter. The splitter then drops all of that beat into a, into a chute which then divides it uh, between two buckets essentially so you get a, a paired sample potentially. Um, and that that'll be a sub sample of the main sample, and that represents the content of the beet. And that amount of beet is about twenty five kilos when it's down to a single bucket. This happens at all of the four manufacturing sites, and then the the samples are brought to the central tearhouse here at Wissington for analysis. So no other no other site has this uh, has the laboratory here for doing the uh, the analysis.
0: And I think someone might have noticed we've got a recorder out, <laughs> <laughs> so say so it's 50 kilos in total that's taken out and is that again it's still mapped back to the contract number
1: that's right yeah so when the bucket of beet is taken there'll be a a little ticket that's um, produced by the the sampler it's put into a little plastic um, tub that's screwed up tight and sealed and that goes into the bucket with the beet sample and so it travels with it for the rest of the process so there's always an identification tag with the sample, so you can always link it back to whose contract it was, which vehicle delivered it.
0: So we've got a nice line of buckets in front of us. So this is obviously where the samples come in. And oh, you, you've got you've taken two samples from each
1: load. So only, only one of them is used. Yeah. The other the other would allow the collection of a duplicate sample, essentially. So it's normally only one bucket per per sample actually comes here.
0: And it's amazing, actually, just looking at these buckets, the the difference in. You know, size, soil, color. And you can see one or two that are obviously very, very wet, possibly a little bit of um, rot in there. But, uh, it's, it's amazing the difference that we're looking at.
1: That's right. It's a, sort of a multicolored dream coat here. Um, some of the more practiced eyes think they can identify where the beets come from just by the way it looks. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm there yet with that, but you can <laughs> certainly see some of the darker, peatier, organic soils, and some of the lighter, sandier stuff is very yeah. easy to distinguish
0: and slightly concerning is the amount of damage that we're looking at here now could that some of that damage be from the extraction process or is that likely to be a fair sample of what we're looking at in the yeah, lorry
1: there'll be some some damage obviously as it's harvested and, and put into the lorries and things there will be a, a little bit of breakage that might happen in the um in where, as the core sample is taken it's a fairly um large diameter core so we hope to avoid too much of that but you could probably see where the the fresh damage is is, is where it's nice and clean and, and white. That's probably where it's been been nicked by something in the yeah. process. But some of the rest of it, like this, you can see that. I'll to say is, there's a, there's the a few like of the that.
0: buckets here where you can see there's obviously been a lot of damage in field, isn't there? But I suppose that particularly those that are from really wet soils, conditions are that bad, they have to be cleaned really hard, and that vigorous process will come to some damage, won't there?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And when uh, when we have nice, dry conditions, light sandy soils, for example, the the dirt just falls off the beat almost um, without much persuasion um, which is a, a bit of a different um, scenario to where we are right now yeah. on the 5th of January.
0: And unfortunately for the whole of this season there hasn't been much of a time where you've had that nice
1: dry conditions over here. That's right, yeah. Yeah.
0: So from here you've got quite a load of buckets all waiting to be processed. That's
1: right, so if you look over there you can see how they come into the uh, the tear house, So we've got buckets coming up a conveyor belt and each of those is associated with a sampled lorry. They come round and then they're, they're manually lifted over here. So what we call this at the moment is the dirty beet sample for obvious reasons, it's covered in yep. soil and exactly as it was retrieved from, from the lorry. So the first thing we will need to do is to weigh the sample and that will be the dirty weight of beet. Um, So the the objective here is, of course, to get the the weight of the the beet with the the mud on it, the soil on it. Um, And the next stage that is right in front of us is to wash the beet. Um, So we're standing at the the front end of the the beet washers here. Um, The beet and the uh, sample stub uh, identifier will go into the washer and this is essentially like a, a washing machine with with slats in it and high pressure spray bars that spray water onto the beet, and this is just to remove all the the sand the soil the, the mud from from the outside of the beet, and it'll come out the other side nice and clean so now standing at the uh, clean end of the washer and you can see that the beet will be uh, discharged out of the washer uh, into a a container here, you can see the path it takes through here, there's like a spiralled path on the inside of the washer that keeps the beat moving in the right direction and conveniently, Blue Peter style, there is some clean beat right <laughs> behind us. I'm
0: surprised the drums are a good, what, eight, ten foot?
1: Yeah they're fairly substantial, I mean you could see from the dirty beat there's um, there's some pretty stubborn soil sometimes, particularly the clay type soil and of course in the grooves on the beat and the, if you get any fanging or anything like that it can be really quite challenging to to remove the soil from that.
0: And then we have a nice clean sample in front of us. Yes,
1: yes, so you can see that back to to good as new, more or less. Um, So yeah, that that should have nearly all of the dirt removed from it. If there is any real big chunks that are are stuck in grooves and things, then that might also be um, removed at this stage. But you can see the variety of the sizes have come through as well. We've got everything here from almost the size of my head uh, to uh, something a bit more turnip like or or uh, you know maybe even a big parsnip
0: and that's very reflective of what a lot of people are seeing in the field that we're getting a, a fair mix of sizes okay so nice and clean
1: yeah so we've got our clean beet sample and um, so now that is that's weighed again so now we have a a dirty weight that we started with and a clean weight of the same sample of beet and what that allows us to calculate is the dirt tear and then that can be used to back calculate to the lorry to represent how much of the lorry um, was soil? Because of course, what we're we're really looking for is sugar beet, not um, not soil.
0: So again, it, it just goes back to how important it is for growers to get the, the beet out as cleanly as possible, doesn't that?
1: Exactly. Yep. So the next stage here, we've got our clean um, clean beet now, is to prepare the actual sample for the laboratory analysis, which is through those doors, and we'll go in there in a second. So this piece of kit in front of us is called the bry saw. Um, so of course the, the sample will be identified again according to its, its ID tag that follows it through the whole process. And then it will go into um, this machine here which, if you think of it as a, as a drum, which is tumbling the beat inside with a very sharp circular saw uh, protruding into the side of the drum, which means that randomly as the beat comes round it will get struck by the saw and it will cut into, into the sugar beet and it will produce a paste uh, called bry, which is our um, sample of sugar beet that we will then analyse in the laboratory.
0: I can see the the tin cans there, I take that's your um, bry samples. We'll wander
1: around here and we'll be able to see a bit easier.
0: So that's the samples that have now come through.
1: So essentially this is an automated laboratory system uh, we're looking at here, so we've got, you can see over there, some. Uh, some stainless steel buckets, they collect the bry from the bry saw, this sugar beet paste that comes around and it moves around on a conveyor belt and then we have uh, it's more or less a robotic spoon that takes a, a sample of that bry and puts it into the first stage of our analysis system. So what we have to do is to extract the sugar and the impurities from the bry sample into a solution that we can then analyse the constituent parts of. How we do that is we mix the the bry with a lead acetate solution that extracts the sugar out but the the lead is there to uh, clarify the solution so that the instruments can then read it correctly because they they rely on uh, light passing through the sample and if it's too murky the instrument wouldn't be able to function. So we use a clarifying agent to to achieve that and then it will be filtered so you can see here these big rolls of filter paper and that's so that the Bry sample can be then deposited over here on onto the filter paper and then under vacuum it can be sucked, sucked through it. the filter so we'll end up with our clarified um, solution that we will measure the content So
0: from of. the 50 kilos that collected at the start it's only one tablespoon roughly that you, yep. you're yep, so working to. Yeah so we're talking
1: to... about 26 grams of braille, um is what roughly will we'll end up going through this process. Yep. Now we've got our solution it transferred over to our um, measurement system here so what we're looking at here, we've already measured our dirt content, that's the first one we measure we now measure uh, four other things, we measure our sugar content, sucrose which is uh, clearly what what we're most interested in Mm -hmm. and then we measure uh, three impurities as well which are amino nitrogen, sodium and potassium so the first thing that we we measure here is the, the sugar content so the clarified sample will get pumped through into this machine here which is a polarimeter and this measures the sugar content of the solution that we've just created and the way that that works is um, sugar as a molecule is able to rotate light as it passes through it and this instrument is able to detect how much the light has been rotated when it's passed through the solution so the more sugar you have in in the solution the more rotation of the light you'll get that will produce a, a bigger number on the detector, essentially, and we're we're able through calibration to calculate that back to a sugar content. Okay.
0: And you said you also um, test for sodium and amino nitrogen, Yeah, and potassium. But, uh, yep. Potassium. So
1: that that's what these two I- instruments on the top here do. So these are our this is our impurity um, uh, measurement station. So the the one on the left here is a flame photometer. Um, so, what that does is measures the sodium and potassium content of the solution, and you may remember from uh, your GCSE chemistry classes that certain metals, when you hold them in a flame, will actually change color of the flame. So this instrument here takes advantage of that, so sodium typically gives you a, an orange um, color flame, and potassium will give you a purple color flame so that means it's emitting a different wavelength of light Mm. so what this instrument can do is is burn the solution by spraying it into a into a a very hot flame and then it will it'll actually look at the light that's coming off of the flame and by how purple it is and how orange it is it'll be able to calculate back what the sodium and potassium content of the beat is for that
0: okay and what are you looking for what would be a good sodium potassium rate
1: Oh, so we're into units here, unfortunately. Um, so this instrument is essentially measuring the um, the parts per million or the the concentration of the um, the impurities on the beet. Um, but of course, as a bit sort of topical right now, with a lot of rainfall or not very much rainfall, what you would see is the hydration and the dehydration of the beet. Of course, would affect those numbers by how much water there is in the sample. So what we actually do is refer everything back to the sugar content, so it's the impurities we measure it as a percentage almost of the sugar and that allows us to keep everything in balance with the water essentially so that we don't see the impurities go up every time there's a dry weather spell or or vice versa when we've had lots of rain because it will always move with the sugar essentially.
0: And so do growers actually get a breakdown of those impurities in their report?
1: Yeah, yeah. So they receive the uh, their sodium, potassium, and amino nitrogen numbers um, on a I think it's on a weekly basis that's reported to the grower. Um, so it's all associated with their their analysis for sugar content and comes out there. I believe it comes out there my British sugar portal. Yeah. So you can see some some raw results here. So you've got this sample here is so a 15.48% sugar, and then we've got 3.68 potassium, 0.86 sodium, and 1.43. Um, amino nitrogen—they probably don't mean much to to them on their own—but we, we'll usually convert those to uh, um, to a, um, uh, milligrams on sugar or millimolar on, on sugar number, uh, which is the one that we, we tend to report.
0: Okay, so you showed us how to get the sodium potassium. Yep. What about for the amino nitrogen? How do you measure The amino that? nitrogen
1: is mm. this instrument on the right here. So this is called a double beam photometer. Um, and this carries out a small chemical reaction essentially with the solution we've produced. So it uses a copper nitrate um, solution. Copper uh, will bind with the amino nitrogen content in the solution and produce a blue color. Um, so what we can do is is have two samples, one that gets mixed with copper and the other one that gets mixed with a blank reagent with no copper in it essentially. One will go blue, the other one will stay as it was and then by comparing the absorbance between the two samples you can calculate how much amino nitrogen was present in that sample. Hence the double beam, it needs two beams to measure the reference sample and the actual sample with the copper in it side by side. And all of this is automated? It'll just uh, do its thing and out come the dirt content, the sugar content, Sodium, potassium, and amino nitrogen for the same sample.
0: Some of this kit looks fairly new. So, is this something new to British Sure? I know you've always done testing, but is this sort of system? So these
1: instruments, you're quite right. They're nice and shiny. Um, I think these have been in for two years now. Um, So these were essentially essential replacement for instruments that were old and uh, (laughs) in in need of replacement. So clearly, this is a a fairly um, extensive um, investment, this this laboratory.
0: So I, I can see from the area and the workspace here that you have a, a, a minimal number of staff. I, I don't suppose many, but I'm assuming that they do a, a night duty. And I think that I'm right in saying they actually manage all of the samples from all of the sites, don't they?
1: That's right, yeah. So all of the samples that are taken from the from the probes on site are transported by a lorry. To Wissington, and they're all processed through this centralised tearhouse laboratory. So, overnight, that's that's when all the actual um, analysis and sample processing is done. You can see a bit of activity going on here lots of cleaning and maintenance of that, calibrations and things will be done during the day. But, yeah, most of the staff are here at night.
0: Why is it done at night?
1: So, we, we have the beet samples are all collected through the day. Of course, the weigh bridges are open five till five or five till six, something like that. So, we haven't got a complete set of of beet samples from the factory until the end of the day and then of course they have to get to Wissington so there's a lorry moves them all around brings them here and then we would like the data as soon as possible so we'll have it ready for the morning so we know what's arrived yesterday um, for use in the factory and and the counting and all those purposes.
0: And any idea on an average day how many samples you'd actually be putting through here?
1: Four, five, six hundred samples uh, will go through um, overnight and and into the morning. So we've
0: now had a look at the data that's come through and we can see that all on the
1: screen. What happens next? So the the whole system is computerised as you can imagine, so it tracks the sample number all the way through this process and is then able to associate the sample and therefore the contract uh, with the analysis that we've produced here. So of course the, the most important one we be thinking about would be the sugar content and that then can be used to calculate the payment of course for the for the grower um, once they work back to adjusted tons of, of sugar essentially that's been delivered. Um, so this is all connected to um, to a system called Croplands which will then take all of this data and move it to where it needs to go.
0: I mean, we've got a number of samples in front of us here but you couldn't actually tell whether they are the same contracts, different contracts?
1: No, that's right. So they've got a a unique um, identifier that's produced when the lorry comes onto site. Uh, We can see here which which factory um, these have come from, but that's pretty much it.
0: And uh, we'll be talking to Simon shortly about the actual sugar impurities and and sugar levels for this year, because there's been a, a little bit drop for the last few years. Have you seen the same this year?
1: Yes, yeah. so um, we, we've seen a, a general shift in the amount of impurities that are in the beat. Um, around about five five years ago or so, it seemed to take quite a step change for, for the worse, so more impurities in, in the beat, um, and we are trying to understand the, the reasons behind why that's happened and, and what we can do about it.
0: Right, well, I'm about to speak to Simon, so I shall pick his brains and see if he can um, add any information for that for us. So Great. thank you ever so much, Perry. Thank you very much. Cheers. So it's been great to have a little wander around with perry and find out how the tear house is operating and obviously how they're monitoring the sugar levels but although we can see what's happening here at tear house level what's actually happening in fields simon how are sugars affected
2: well it's a, such a simple question to ask that isn't it of course you know what my answer is going to be <laughs> and it is really incredibly complex and but i I wanted to make that point because I think we're often very keen to just find a single factor which is responsible for it. And clearly in 2023, our sugar levels were lower. Typically, they sit between 17 and 17 and a half. 2023, and I think most growers would have seen this, they're pretty much a whole percentage lower, sitting between 16 and 16 and a half. So I think there's the question is why are our sugar levels lower, and particularly the production of sugar in the field? But then we also need to remind ourselves, obviously, when we when the crops come into the factory, uh, and how we extract the sugar from them, and of course that's what growers are measured on to a degree, are there factors there which
0: affect that uh, extraction process as well. And do you find that the sugars fluctuate much across the season? So, so actually when we're starting to harvest, weather's patterns changing, uh, temperatures changing, is there much difference between what we're seeing in harvesting from, say, end of September to what we potentially will be seeing from the, the last few crops in February?
2: I think there's two parts to that question. I think, first of all, we we establish a level of sugar production in the field, which I think is the kind of top level. You know, we need good canopies, we need optimum plant densities. uh, And, and of course, we need good sunshine levels. We shouldn't uh, forget that in July last year, the sunshine levels, which is a key month for the sugar crop, is when we've got our full canopies and they're very effective and very high radiation use efficiency at that time. Actually, our sunshine levels in July 2023 were actually 30% down on where they are on the long-term average. Actually, our sugar level was a little bit lower. You've got to remember, a lot of those crops were late planted as well. So some of them were probably a little bit later to pull, reach full canopy, even in July. So we probably didn't have the greatest start. So you get to that point point in what a crop can potentially do, but then it can be massively influenced by the weather and it's probably one of the biggest factors, and it's unfortunate because we can't control it, (laughs) we do it, can affect it, particularly the two conditions which have been identified over the year, if we have a late summer drought followed by a lot of rain.
0: When we're looking at the harvesting period, what you're saying really is because there are less sunlight hours, really what you're getting at the end of September, October, there's not going to be a huge amount of change between that and February unless we suddenly have a the warm area.
2: The, the, the only other factor which I would introduce in there is obviously if we get a lot of foliar disease mm-hmm. uh, and we do know again obviously if we get a lot of disease it has to be quite severe infection and we did see a lot more Cercospora in 2023 than we anticipated that's probably a subject of a, another conversation, another day, but we did see it. And of course, what's happening there, you're getting a lot of leaf degradation, leaf senescence. And when that happens within the plants, obviously you're losing photosynthetic area. So you're not, you're not getting able to capture sunlight and convert it into sugar. But also where that process of those leaves kind of breaking down, mobilizes a lot of nitrogen in the plant, which can then be moved down into the root and increase our amino N levels again goes, goes back to my point about you've got what's being produced in the field but what's happening in this really complex biochemistry in the root now most growers will see their amino ends because it's when they deliver it uh, and we know amino n is, is probably the main impurity there's lots of impurities but it's the number one one which can result in low sugars particularly makes it very difficult to extract sugar efficiently and it means sugar can get carried right through to the later stages of the processes as we can lose it into molasses as well so it is a, it's a quite an important uh, impurity we need to keep amino N levels low and I can talk a little bit about the levels we should be targeting in a moment.
0: I don't suppose many of the growers look that closely They the report back I mean it's usually what the sugar levels are but they can actually see from that what that amino N is and can you perhaps just tell us a little bit about what affects amino N in the beet itself?
2: Yeah, so they, they they can see that, and I've had a number of growers uh, last year who were concerned about their sugar levels, and I said, well, let's let's just. Grab that data out of your your spreadsheet you get back and let's graph the sugar level and the amino N. And when you did that, you could very quickly see as amino N levels went up, certainly above a hundred milligrams per hundred gram of sugar, you could see the sugars come down. So it's the, the chemistry is complex. We probably haven't got time to get into that today, but just be assured that when those amino levels go high, you will expect to see your, your sugar levels go down. So, what kind of levels I'm talking about? This is a big gen- Generalization, but I think it's probably a good one. If you are below 100 milligrams of amino N per 100 gram of sugar, you're probably in a safe area. But when they start increasing, certainly up to 150, 200, 300 uh, milligrams of amino N per 100 gram, you're going to see effects on on your sugar level.
0: And 300 grams, I mean, that's a massive increase, isn't it? It is,
2: but what is quite characteristic of last year, and a lot of growers have said to me, they've seen some very variable amino ends, even within the same field where they've been able to track fields, and some have, and I've seen some values as high as that. It's not, it's not unusual, we do see it. And in the days when we were pouring on very large amount of nitrogen and, uh, and manures as well, we sometimes saw that.
0: So, so just to tell me a little bit about what is causing a high level of amino acids, what's actually happening throughout the season that's making those changes?
2: It is effectively having too much nitrogen in the plant or having it remobilised. So there's a number of things going on. Clearly, if we put lots of nitrogen on, certainly more than the crop needs, particularly on fertile soils, so silts, clay loams and organic and peaty soils where there's a lot of residual nitrogen. There is a risk that we will encourage a nitrogen uptake and we'll have a lot more nitrogen. I already talked about the fact where we have diseases and uh, often that when we get that leaf degradation and also following drought of course, there's a lot of remobilization of nitrogen from the leaves down into the roots of course. So they're, they're, they're some of the key factors that can uh, influence
0: that. But surely in this last sort of year, 18 months, we've been reducing the use of nitrogen in the field. Wouldn't we have expected to see a, an increase then in sugars? I think
2: probably putting the right amount on is fine. I think it's in those situations where we, go, we get too high, and I think particularly situations where we've used manures and probably even cover crops, particularly if we've got legumes in it, But also I think then this indicates the weather patterns, because obviously we can sometimes start picking up nitrogen from the soil late in the season, particularly if we have a year like we had last year, we might've lost a little bit of nitrogen early on in the season, but as the roots kind of got deeper and deeper, they started picking up a lot more of that nitrogen. So I think one of the key messages is we have to really manage our nitrogen applications really carefully to make sure we're not putting too much on and getting ourselves into situations where the weather patterns go against us. They may get a flush of nitrogen, particularly late in the season, which will drive our amino ends. It's not the only factor. I mean, we do tend to point the finger at nitrogen fertilisers, but there there are many other factors. And I say the factors such as drought and things and disease as well uh, probably work separately from nitrogen, but they are factors we can manage.
0: So let's look a little bit about drought, because obviously that's been something that's more impacted over the last sort of three, four years than we've seen in many years before. Is there anything that we could actually be doing to try and mitigate the, the drought impact and obviously the increase of the amino nitrogen?
2: I think there absolutely are, but just remember what the drought effects are, they have twofold in a way. First of all is the effect of remobilizing nitrogen in the plants, but also obviously following drought and rain, the plant sugar beet bean will try and grow again and obviously to do that it will rob sugar from the root so there's, there's almost a double, double whammy effect I think one of the areas I would like to remind ourselves, like, the more we can do to improve our resilience of our soils to drought, the less likely we are to see this such amount of leaf senescence degradation after drought events. So back to things like improving soil health, uh, in trying to improve organic matter, improving soil structure, putting manures on, improving the fertility of it. We have to do it in a managed way, because if you remember, I've already said if we go too far, it can actually make the problem work. But actually trying to improve the drought resilience of our crops actually will quite have, have an effect
0: that's one thing we can do obviously we can do very little when it comes to sunlight hours yep. but is it again something we need to be looking at is there a difference in varieties for the sugar impurity levels
2: Good question. If you, if you look at impurities or, or even like sugar content, so if you cast your eye over the uh, 2024 RL list, you'll see there probably is a difference of around 1%. So there's an intrinsic genetic difference. But what I would now say is actually other effects are much more important. Uh, and I've, I think it's probably, probably said three times more important, the site effects rather than the variety effects. Mm-hmm. But clearly, if you do have a persistent problem with sugars, or you're looking maybe to early lifting, try and go with a variety. which we know genetically tends to produce a higher sugar, will probably put you in a better position, won't it? But I think actually, yes, genetics, there is a small effect, but by the, the most significant effects are side effects. I think uh, we talked about nitrogen, and again, I think I would reiterate, making sure we assess our nitrogen status of the soil and only apply a nitrogen to what the crop needs is really important. talked about building soil resilience. I'd also just remind people... For anybody who have low potash soils, and I'm talking index of 0, 1 and below, potash is quite important, particularly for canopy growth and persistence in drought. So we do know, and there's been work which showed that if you get very low Soil potash, you can see increased amino ends and low sugars as well. So making sure, I think majority of growers' crops are probably on higher indices, but if you are in that situation, uh, it, and many growers may not have been planting potash over the last few years because of the cost of fertilisers, if you are particularly indexes 1 and 0, make sure we're putting some potash on. Yeah,
0: any idea how that works?
2: Uh, principally through affecting the soil, uh, the moisture status of the plant. Potash is a really important osmoregulator, so it's actually allowing those plants to remain turgid and keep going stronger. You tend not to get the resulting leaf death. Mm-hmm. You know, many growers have seen after a drought, you see the whole, whole of the bottom, 50% of the leaves just die off. You'll prevent that, and prevent that process of then remobilizing nitrogen. Mm-hmm. The other areas, I think two other areas I'd cover off is obviously making sure we keep our crops protected, particularly against disease, and that was challenging in 2023. We did see a bit of Cercospa come in, but making sure we're really attending to the detail to keep those crops so we're not getting this uh, senescence of the leaves and the other one is just worth reflecting on, and we'll probably lose sight of it, and it's been very challenging this year because of harvesting conditions, is root damage. We know if we cause a lot of root damage, root tip breakage, and root damage, we will then accelerate sugar loss quite considerably. I think the work has shown it's probably respiration, which is our main cause of sugar loss, is three times higher in badly damaged roots as opposed to uh, undamaged ones, and particularly if temperatures are still warm. So obviously, early campaign where temperatures are probably still above 10 degrees and lots of root damage. We'll loose sugar there as well so again it does reinforce that it's never going to be one thing it's going to be a combination of factors which we really need to attend to the detail of
0: and it goes to show that even if you've got you know reasonable sugars if you get sugars at 17 but you know full well you've had some um, instance of drought or you've got disease there is more to be had isn't there if if people you know just pay that little bit more attention one more relationship is
2: probably just worth drawing attention to um, is obviously and it's a bit of a general one obviously in years of high yields particularly large roots and we got some very large mm. roots from last year you tend to see a decline in sugar if you just think about the complex biochemistry of obviously getting sugar produced and moved in if you've got very large roots with probably very large cells in the roots you've got a lot more challenge with regards to getting sugar moved into those cells so we do tend to see as uh, yields go up Sugars do tend to decline. Now, intuitively, that feels wrong, doesn't it? But I think what I'm trying to say, there's a bit of a sweet spot. Sorry about that. Very <laughs> Sweet spot between root size and sugar. And obviously, that's what you see when returns come back. But obviously, I think in years where we have got some very large roots, we have we would probably generally expect to see some lower, lower sugars. It's purely a dilution effect, really, isn't it? You've got some very large roots, you know. But it re- reinforces the point of, obviously, in those situations, we need to keep those canopies as productive and producing sugar as long as possible to make sure we can uh, fill ourselves up with sugar.
0: And certainly for the 2023 year, I mean, we've got good-sized roots, but actually when you think that most of it was drilled in, what, late April, May time, I mean, the the, the growth there has been huge isn't it yeah
2: and it's getting that combination of root growth and sugar production isn't it so we've seen some fantastic growth but actually again bear in mind my comments about sunshine levels and we've probably not been able to keep track with sugar production and the fact we've got those big cells in those roots makes it challenging to get the sugar moved in I'm not going to go into all the kind of complexities of the sucrose gradient hypothesis but it's quite important
0: that's great so thanks so much for that Simon that's uh, given us a real good insight into not only what's happening, but some of the small tweaks that we can make to hopefully bring um, the sugars up for future years. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Hopefully that's provided you some food for thought for managing your crop going forward in 2024. And just a quick reminder that we have our Beat Tech 24, and that's the 6th of February at Newmarket, 8th of February at Belton Woods, and drill training is the 20th of February at Morley Farms. 21st of February at Rise Home Campus. To book for any of these events, please go to our website, www.bbro.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you for listening.